0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The federal government's new climate plan aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 210 megatons by 2030. That's a 30% reduction from what we were putting out in 2017. And the transportation sector is expected to do much of the heavy lifting. At the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, Executive Fellow Brian Livingston and Research Fellow Sarah Hastings-Simon have been crunching the numbers. They estimate we'll need to cut GHGs per passenger vehicle by 34% over the next decade. We began by establishing that their research for the institute wasn't about determining the likelihood of reaching these targets. It's really more about what it's going to take to reach them.
1: That was really the guiding question that we had, was not, you know, do we believe necessarily the modeling that has been done or the forecasting, but it's a question of, if you are going to achieve these levels, what does it mean? And in particular in the transport sector, what does it mean for EV sales and mileage to try to give people a bit of a better sense of, you know, can you know, are we on track to get there? What kind of policies might be necessary to get there? And really just, you know, what does it mean in terms of changes in our energy system overall?
2: Michael, we adopted the term uh, reverse engineering. I'm an engineer as well as a lawyer. And we said, unlike most forecasting, where you start from today and work forward, this is exact reverse. We start from 2030 and work backward to today and say, what would, it, what would it have taken to get to 2030 from today? And what are the assumptions that you have to make in order to get to those final targets and goals in 2030? So the term we adopted was reverse engineering.
0: Well, the majority of GHG reductions in the transportation sector are expected to come from passenger vehicles. Let's reverse engineer that. Is this the biggest cohort responsible for GHG in transport?
2: The short answer is yes. Uh, Transport in total is about 25% of Canada's emissions. One in four tons comes out of something to do with transportation. A subgroup of that is passenger vehicles, which is everything from cars and sedans to light vehicles like trucks and pickup trucks and and SUVs is about half of that 25% or 12.5%. About six or 7% is freight trucks. You know, the trucks that you and I and Sarah see as we drive along the highway, the 18 wheelers, but it's also smaller trucks like Oh, the VA, the Amazon and, and FedEx and, and so on, trucks that you see on the street delivering things. And it's even pickup trucks that people use in their commercial business, contractors and so on.
0: Every time the price of gasoline falls though, we see consumers jump back into pickup trucks and SUVs. You know, what does the current vehicle sales market look like? Well, what are we buying today?
1: Couple of thoughts on that. So one is, you know, we definitely see a trend that consumers are buying larger vehicles, and um, you know, the the efficiency improvements in vehicles over the last decades, a lot of them have gone not to improving the um, the efficiency of the vehicle itself, but actually into making vehicles larger uh, and and giving them more power. And that's uh, you know, that's clearly a trend that has been happening. Um, you know, I, I think there's something else interesting though that comes out of this phenomenon that that you described, which is that consumers are very sensitive to the price at the pump the day that they go to purchase a car or a vehicle, uh, and that is, you know, I think really illustrates that our vehicle purchasing habits are not, um, you know, they're, they're not done in a way that that an economist might. Like where, you know, you sit down with a spreadsheet and you look at the total cost of ownership over the lifetime of the vehicle and you make some prediction about what's going to happen to gasoline prices over the, you know, 10 plus years that you own the car. You really just, you know, look at the price at the pump today and make your decision. And that has a big impact on uh, the decision, for example, to choose an electric vehicle or not. Because you know, right now we're at the point where electric vehicles are more costly uh, to purchase. The sticker price is higher, but the total cost of ownership, because of the lower cost of um, electricity versus fuel and the lower maintenance costs, that you actually save money over the lifetime of the vehicle. But what we see is that consumers haven't, you know, to um, a large degree, uh, that the adoption is still, you know relatively slow, it is picking up now. Um, but I think that's just, uh, you know, to, to me, it it is a great example of why we're talking about the role of public policy in this space at all. The idea that, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a need for government to correct some of the market failures in particular around kind of the, the lifetime, um, calculation that's being done or, or sort of this understanding of the cost of ownership of a vehicle over its over its lifetime?
2: The market is the market and people are buying what they are buying and, and car manufacturers know that. There's a great debate about whether people buy what they innately want or whether people buy because what advertisers tell them is something that they should want. But in any event, they are buying uh, the larger cars. And what you're seeing is that the car manufacturers in the electric vehicle, and we'll talk about this perhaps in a moment, they recognize that and they say, look, we, brought our, we got our engineers together and we said, can we build an electric pickup truck? Can we build electric vans? And the answer from the engineers was yes. It'll take time. It'll take effort. We'll have to build new plants to do that. We we can't just, as my boss used to say, you can't just go out to Canadian Tire and buy one of these car manufacturing plants in aisle 12, at Canadian Tire. They take years to build. They take billions of dollars and they take an immense amount of effort. There's an old saying that uh, I think attributed to Thomas Edison and Sarah and I both share a background in physics, Sarah more than me, but still I, I did take physics quite a bit when I was in school. And Thomas Edison famously said that uh, invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. In other words, the effort to actually do things, to implement whatever goals you wanna do, takes a lot of time. Elon Musk, if you he were here, and I've heard him on many occasions say, building prototypes is is easy. Building in volume is, and he uses this word, insanely difficult. So that work, and that's something that in my career, and I worked for a large company that built lots and lots of big projects. Building big projects takes a lot of time, effort, and they often take longer than you think. And sometimes they take uh, more money than you think. And you shouldn't just assume that you can go out and build them quickly. But companies are definitely, knowing that people have this, desire to to, uh, to buy large, uh, to buy pickup trucks and vans, and they are uh, acting accordingly.
0: Sarah, you mentioned the electric vehicle component of this, and, and you've written that the rate of turnover will play a big role in the success of achieving the reduction. As of 2017, the latest figures I've been able to find, the average age of a car or light truck in Canada was 9.7 years. meeting the GHG reduction goals leans heavily on passenger vehicles. So how reliant on EVs are we in meeting this goal?
1: Vehicle electrification and, and in the passenger vehicles is definitely in a really important component of meeting the GHG reduction goal uh, within transportation. Um, so it's it's, you know, if you were to try to get there, what we found through um, efficiency alone or reduction in vehicle mileage, um, it would be quite a heavy lift on either of those uh, elements. So I think that's going to be, you know, clearly a big piece of the puzzle. And and I think the good news there is that we are starting to see that you know manufacturers are responding to this uh, expectation of of shift in demand. We're seeing a lot more vehicle models coming out that are electrified. And at the same time, we're seeing the cost of uh, uh, that sticker price coming down significantly. So I look at and see a lot of positive signs uh, in, in the potential to get there. Um when we think about vehicle lifetime, you know, this is this is another space where policy comes in and can play a role. Uh, so there are examples of, of policy mechanisms that have been used historically to accelerate retirement of older vehicles that are, um, you know, more polluting things like so-called cash for clunkers, where you're basically uh, paying people to, to bring cars off the road. Um, but I think you know, there's sort of vehicle, I, I would answer the your, your first question with a little bit of a yes and, you know, vehicle electrification is a very important component of um, meeting this emissions reduction target, but there's more to it as well. Um, and so, you know, it's it's sort of, it's a common um I think it's a common answer across the the climate and emission space is that there is no silver bullet, right? We really, we're working with silver buckshot, to pardon the expression. Uh, And so within the the passenger space, you know, certainly uh, vehicle electrification, but also things like reducing the number of trips that are being taken. Cars are obviously a very, very useful tool. And for some uses, you know, it's hard to come up with something, anything better. But for short trips, for for trips around the city, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement around the electrification of, um, of smaller vehicles, electric bikes, uh, scooters, a very large number of trips that are taken in cars um, are actually relatively short distances. So, you know, we're talking uh, under five kilometers. Um, and there, there may be uh, vehicles or, or transportation options that are actually better suited for the purpose. So it's, uh, you know, electrification of vehicles is clearly an important piece of the uh, puzzle, but it's, uh, it's not the only one
0: you and I, Sarah, I think are, are Gen X. Let me ask the boomer first this next question. Hey, boomer. There are mixed reports on millennial car buying habits. Are we relying on this demographic to eschew car ownership in favor of on-demand vehicles? You know, Sarah, you mentioned that, you know, it seems like fleet services and automated technologies are kind of the the future for a certain demographic. Brian, what do you think of the idea? Because your generation was the one that was the first to have a love affair with the automobile.
2: Well, it was actually before I think it was George Lucas in American Graffiti that really talked about uh, a love affair with the automobile. But you're right. Uh, by, I have two sons who are in their 20s and neither one of them has a car. Uh, if they need one, they'll either use Uber, use rental or use mom and dad in about that order. And so, what they, uh, what I think people, some people believe, is this. Sarah, you mentioned about short-term and long-term cars. I could see where people say, look, for short-term city driving, electric cars may, may make more sense. You don't have to go as far. You don't have to go as fast. You can charge the car every night in your driveway or at your place of work. And so. I, if I buy a car, it will be a smaller car that will do that for larger, longer trips, like on the highway to see go and see grandma and medicine Hat or some further place away that that uh, I may have a, a gasoline car because they get not better mileage, but they are more suited to highway driving. There is an infrastructure of gasoline stations still out there and they have better range uh, in some cases. Boomers may say, I don't want a car. I want a car service. And if Elon Musk and some of his Tesla supporters were here, he'd say, that's what taxi is about. I don't know if you've anybody have heard that term, but that basically, I, ca- I call taxi Uber minus the driver. In other words, the car literally would be autonomous at level, what they call level five, and would be able to come to you uh, and pick you up. You could say, I'm at the corner of Spruce and Goose downtown. Please come and pick me up and take me to wherever I have to go. The car would come and pick you up just like uber does except there'd be no driver you get in the car it would drive you there you'd get out you'd have an app that would pay for it and the car would then go on to the next user so you would have an electric vehicle and this is something that tesla is big on autonomous driving is something that tesla is very very big on uh they have just come out with a new uh, what they call fsd full self-driving uh, app i think it's version nine it's So it's the jury is out in the sense that some people think it's going to happen next year, one of whom was the host of Saturday Night Live about a week ago. Other people say there's just too many specific things that individuals have to do when they drive full self, full self driving is going to be difficult, if not. Maybe ever possible to do, especially when there's so much traffic in so many cities so that the jury is still out on that and we'll see. But I think a lot of boomers, or a lot of millennials, rather, to to use your expression, they see that as the future of transportation. I don't own a car. I just have a transportation app.
0: But is that something that comes between now and 2030?
2: Well, again, if you listen to the guy who was the host of Saturday Night Live, he'd say you're darn right it will.
1: I I think uh I would be very surprised to see fully autonomous vehicles by 2030. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, Brian and I have chatted about this in the past, too. I think he's probably more on that side as well, too. I mean, it's it's a really the challenge of, um, of, of completely replacing the human is, is quite a big one. Um, one of the things that I think we will see and, and are increasingly seeing is uh, driver assist technology. Uh, so, you know. Uh, uh, Alert in your car that somebody is in your blind spot when you turn on your turn signal, um, and your car beeps at you when you're uh, going to run into someone in front of you, and you know automatically applies the brakes. And those things are available in you know in, in cars today that are you know even not even not sort of the high end cars. Um, and I think that will make a big difference actually in in collisions, um, but obviously doesn't uh, doesn't allow you this you know complete self driving. When it comes to issuing car ownership. You, you may have some, you know, small segment of the population that's motivated to look at their emissions and, and issue car ownership for that reason, but I think the majority of the population is really, um, you know, looking for the solutions that work for them best and, and that are uh, the most convenient. And so, you know, I think it's uh, Digger Shaw, who at least I heard this quote from first, that uh, you know, clean tech needs to be a pain pill, not a vitamin. Um, and so what that means is that, you know, the majority uh the population is is busy and has a lot going on in their life and um you know they're not interested in, in weighing the pros and cons of this kind of vehicle versus another. But if you come with something that fixes their their main challenge you know they're all there for it um, and so that's what I think you know when we talk about car ownership and the use of vehicles particularly within within cities um, I do think there is a little bit more of a willingness maybe in in younger generations to um, be open to different solutions and then it's a question of you know is there something that is on offer that meets their transportation needs um, in a way that is better or, or takes care of, you know, something that they find annoying about uh, about typical car ownership. So I think that's a going to be a big piece of the, the answer on, on that side.
2: And Michael, basically, most this is just my view, but most consumers build me a better mousetrap and I'll use it. Explain to me why this car is better, why it does things better for me, and I'll use it. I mean, back in 1904, Henry Ford invented the Model T and he went to people and said, I've got something better than a horse and buggy. And people probably resisted it initially, because that's all they knew were horse and buggies. And 10 years later, they went, geez, that Henry Ford was right. This Model T is better than a horse and buggy, and so I'll use it. So you didn't have to force people to use it. They did it because it was something that was better there are a lot of things in electric cars that an engineer would say are better it's more efficient the energy going in in, in the form of battery energy uses get, it gets you moving on the road far more efficiently i.e. 80% of the energy from your battery goes into moving your car whereas in a like a, a gasoline car maybe only 30% of the energy in a gasoline in the gasoline goes into moving the car the rest goes out as heat through the muffler and the exhaust pipe it's uh, if the gasoline if the electrical energy is cheaper than gasoline for that reason it's cheaper to operate Uh, if it's more convenient for you to recharge your car in your driveway or in your uh, place of work people who own gasoline cars can't do that with their gasoline car they have to go to a service station so all those things are, are trying to encourage people that says hey this is something that you want to do this is like the wind and the sun, if you remember that. It's much better to be the sun and get, encourage the person to voluntarily take his coat, or, his or her coat off than to be the wind and to blow hard and try to force people to take their coat off. If this is a better vehicle, people will buy it. And that's what I think the electric industry, electric car industry is trying to do.
0: But as we've already discussed, at this point in time, people are making decisions based upon prices at the pumps as opposed to total cost of ownership over the lifetime that they have that vehicle. So if we focus then on what people are still primarily buying, an internal combustion engine based vehicle, the goal requires a 5% improvement every year in efficiency. Has the auto industry demonstrated it's capable of this?
1: So one of the ways I think that that goal has been met um, in recent years, and, and part of uh, you know the success of some of the early EV companies, is that. Often the, um, you know, policies that require efficiency improvements are flexible and allow for fuel switching in order to meet those. And so when we talk about a 5% efficiency improvement within the vehicle, um, you know, could, could you get there completely within internal combustion engines Um you know, I think, if you, again, it comes back to that kind of what is the mix of, uh, of vehicle type, how much are uh, manufacturers um, you know, directing toward advertising to push consumers into to bigger and bigger vehicles. Um, you know, there, there certainly could be things that could be done, but I think now where we're at with the growing availability of electric vehicles and falling costs, we're going to see a lot more of that, the, that so-called efficiency improvements um, being met through a switch to EVs.
2: Yeah, and and Michael, they we actually cut that in half. The paper that uh, Joel Belik, the uh, intern, did. And by the way, I'd like to have a shout out for him. I think he did a fantastic job in in doing the paper. I was rereading it last night, and I would recommend it to your listeners to actually go on the CD Howe website if and when it becomes available and read it. But we cut that in half. We said it's only two and a half percent. Have they uh, gasoline? Have the uh, car companies improved the efficiency of car engines? Yes. You mentioned the boomer part. I can remember as a kid, there were cars that had mileage of eight, count of eight miles per gallon, <laughs> right. which was incredibly ridiculously slow. I mean, now they're 25 and 30 miles a gallon. So they have been able to improve it. Uh, the, the gear the gear heads, as they call the car, people would say, you know, we turn half the car off when it's not moving and, and uh, we do things like that that improve the gas mileage. But there is a, a limit. There's a diminishing returns to use the term of how much improvement you can make. But so we did put two and a half percent in, we cut it in half. And you're right, I don't think they've been able to achieve that in the last five years. I think their track record is about half of that or more like one, one and a half percent.
0: Let's talk about the other half of the road conversation here because I I would have always assumed that, the passenger vehicle was not the one emitting the greatest amount of greenhouse gases. It would be the the trucking sector. Now the federal plan may require transport trucks to cut emissions by 23%. Are we seeing evidence that the industry is moving towards the electrification required to accomplish this?
2: I think the short answer is the demand is there, but the supply is not there. Is the demand for electric vehicles, whether they be sedans, pickup trucks, or 18-wheeler trucks, which is what you're talking about. Is it demand-constrained or supply-constrained? And right now, it's just like the vaccines, right? We've been supply-constrained. Everybody wants a vaccine, but we don't have enough. Well, it's the same with electric vehicles to a large extent, particularly with trucks. A lot of people want electric trucks, but there just aren't any available right now. Just to go back to your point, the average car, there's about 22 million, 23 million cars and passenger vehicles and and so on in Canada today. They emit roughly about 3.9 tons of CO2 per year. And you go 3.9 times 23 is about 80 million tons that I mentioned earlier in this podcast. Trucks, those 18 wheelers that we all see going down the highway emit about 45 to 50 tons per year. So that's about 12 to 15 times as much as a, as an ordinary car or a passenger vehicle. The reason why is A, they weigh a lot more, so their mileage is lower, and B, they drive a lot more. They probably drive 160,000 kilometers a year versus the average vehicle passenger vehicle, which drives 16,000 per year, which is obviously 10% only. So in order to have a big bang, yeah, you could start to build a lot of semi-trucks. Uh, Tesla and other companies have said, we want to build semi-trucks but they frankly just haven't quite got around to doing it. I mean, Tesla put a prototype of the semi out in 2017, say it's going to be available in 2019. I look at my watching calendar, it's 2021. It's going to be at least 2022 before they become available. If I brought the head of Loblaws at Walmart and Anheuser-Busch, they'd say, you know, we have put deposits in on those trucks. We put them in three years ago. We will be delighted to see them come into our yards tomorrow for usage. But the problem is they just haven't started building them. And one of the constraints, the supply constraints, is batteries. These things, all these vehicles run on batteries, and you don't just go out and buy some Ever Ready Bunny type batteries to run these things. These are lithium ion high tech batteries, and they take a big battery factory to make them. And so they are constrained. And if you did the proper search on Google, you would see Elon Musk saying we're not going to be, we can't build these semi trucks right now because we frankly don't have enough batteries. We, we're using all the batteries we have for our Model Y and our Model 3, and for some of our what they call megapacks for battery storage for grids, and we just don't have enough. So that is a big, big issue in the next nine years. Can the world, whether it be China, Europe, uh, North America, or any place else, do we have enough minerals? Do we have enough factories to build all these batteries and build all these semi trucks? That's the 99% perspiration that I mentioned.
1: There's been some exciting developments really just, I think 2021, we're starting to see um, some of the electric delivery vans. So I know that Amazon um, has a big uh, uh, order um, in with Rivian, one of the uh, EV manufacturers to, um for, for I think the first order is about 100,000 electric delivery vans in the US um, and those vans have just started hitting the streets I think earlier this year in, in February I've heard uh, from people seeing them pop up uh, in their neighborhoods um, so, so again there I think we're, we're starting to see those vehicles coming out um, and uh, you know the, the transportation the transport truck sector um, there's a freight transportation there's a lot going on there in terms of Um, the amount of freight we're transporting growing and so uh you know needing to to um in order to bring those numbers down you sort of have to do even more because of that growth there Um, so i do think that that that's uh you know that the latter part of 2020s we're going to see a lot more electrification in that space um there's a lot of focus that's often put on the, you know, on the 18 wheelers and in particular on the long haul 18 wheelers. So, you know, there are, um, large trucks. There's there's certainly a, por- a significant portion of those 18 wheelers that are not used in long haul trucking. And so when you look at you know the difficulty of electrifying um, vehicles within the freight space, certainly those long haul 18 wheelers are the hardest, and they tend to get a lot of attention when we talk about the challenges. Um, but there's a lot of electrification that we can go through before we get to that um, to that point. And so that's um, I think something that we are going to see happening. Certainly, uh, you know companies that are managing their fleets um, are going to be doing that kind of calculation of, you know, what does it cost if we go with electric versus uh, internal combustion engine? Um, And so there's a lot of uh, motivation to to basically do do that sooner, um, that you know certainly also within that space within the the um, bus space, uh, you know there's there's a big push in the U.S. around electrifying school buses. That's one that makes a lot of sense. Again, where you have these other benefits, you know, not having children. I can still remember the smell of that diesel bus sitting in that rumbling bus, um, and it you know it turns out that diesel is is really quite bad for uh, for children's growing brains and uh, and asthma. Uh, um, and things like that. So so a lot of kind of co-benefits that can come, um, I think similarly within the... uh City space, so you know things like electrifying um, garbage trucks. Uh, you know, getting rid of a big source of noise within cities um, and, uh, and and suburbs as well um, are all things that we're going to be seeing. And so, whereas if we had been having this conversation, you know, five years ago, I think there was much more of an open debate of how much of um, the the larger vehicle um, uh, emissions reductions would be done via things like hydrogen. I think that window is is shrinking significantly, right? And it's only maybe the long haul um, heavy uh, semis that that people are really seriously talking about um, hydrogen for at this point. And and you know I think the the jury is out on on whether that will make sense as um, as just one vehicle type.
2: The so called medium trucks, they're the ones that, as she said, you see uh, doing deliveries for Amazon and so on. They emit maybe ten or fifteen million tons. They're obviously smaller trucks don't as far. The buses that she mentioned, they're perfect candidates for electrification. I mean, they run a, a definite route. They come back to the the, uh, the garage every night. You can charge them up and, and take them out the next day. Uh, I'll also mention things like government procurement. Uh, when Biden made his announcement recently, maybe three months and perhaps a couple of days, maybe a week after he was uh, inaugurated, he said, I want the post office to use electric vehicles. It's interesting. There's about 165,000 post Post Office uh, trucks, small trucks that literally deliver the mail in in the United States. The Post Office said, "Listen, that's going to cost eight billion dollars to buy those things. We don't have eight billion dollars in a budget." So the Congress came in and said, "Fine, we'll give you that. You know, we'll make funding for the eight million dollars, eight billion dollars available, but on condition that you use this money to uh, to buy electric vehicles, electric small electric trucks, small as sorry, medium electric trucks." The challenge is, and they were able to do it. They said, "We found somebody who can make these." electric trucks, Uh, Sarah mentioned Rivian. There's a lot of other truck manufacturers out there that have said, hey, this is a market opportunity. And the people who buy these things do do the math that Sarah was alluding to. They do look at more than the purchase price. They say, well, what's the operating cost? What's the reliability? What's the economics? And I used to do this in my job. What are the economics of uh, full ownership uh, of this type of vehicle? They look positive. You don't need to force me to do this. The economics are very compelling. I'll do this voluntarily. And like the sun says, I'll take that coat off by myself because I think it's a good thing to do.
0: Let's wrap this up by looking at perhaps some knock on benefits. You know, transportation is second only to the oil and gas sector in GHG emissions. Considering our fractured energy delivery system of pipelines, rail, tanker trucks, will reducing GHG in transportation have a meaningful impact on the energy sector's carbon footprint?
1: I think we will see um, primarily through the demand side um, an impact on the on the energy sector.
0: As in we're not consuming as much fuel? Exactly.
1: It's really the reduction in demand for things like gasoline um, that I think are going to have in the long run the biggest impact on the emissions from the energy sector. And so, you know, the, there's a question of how long that takes. And, you know, as, as people rightly point out, even as we're reducing um demand for oil and gas we will still be uh, using some of it for for quite a while and so it's not that that goes away immediately um, I think the first impact that you see is a reduction in the growth and and to some extent we've seen that already you know in in Alberta we're seeing that um, some of the the forecasts for future growth within the uh, within the oil sands aren't uh, aren't moving forward in the way that they were predicted maybe five or ten years ago um, so I think you're already starting to see some of that um, some of that play out. Uh, but the the potential for that demand to fall, um, you know, I think more quickly than, than maybe we're really having an honest conversation about at this point, I think is out there. And, and you know, one only has to look at um, the coal sector to see, uh, you know, how relatively quickly uh, demand for that fuel, for example, has fallen um, as as alternatives uh, were adopted by, you know, in that case, the power sector. And of course, there's, you know, it's, it's a more complicated Um, uh, marketplace. Uh, So, so it's not to, you know, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but I do think that that is, um, you know, both demand for uh, oil for uh, Canada's own transportation, but I think also really importantly um, for some of our major exporters like the U S who are also really moving, you know, full speed ahead on vehicle electrification um, that that has a potential to, to, take a big chunk out of uh, demand for for uh, oil in the in the coming decades
2: Michael I was listening to uh, one of the uh, large oil and gas companies uh, CNRL uh, Canadian natural Resources and they it was interesting the CEO was talking about things and he said right now we don't have any major growth capex uh, plans in our plans uh, In other words that's kind of alluding to what Cara, uh, what Sarah was saying which is that growth may not occur that much it may be flat. And eventually, it may start to decline because uh, resort, oil production does decline over time, unless you do uh, reinvestments. The big issue will be, what does China do? China's got more cars than any other country, more than the U.S. It's, it's a surprise to most people, and more particularly, more new cars. They have more electric vehicles than any other country, and they manufacture more electric vehicles than any other country, more than the U.S., more than Europe, more than anywhere else. But they have a lot of non-electric vehicles, i.e. gasoline and diesel vehicles as well. So the demand for oil, I was listening to the Canadian uh, Canada West session yesterday on China, and they said that notwithstanding everything else, Demand for oil in China will continue to increase in the next few years. So a lot of Canada's exports of oil may go not from the the United States, but may go to China in the next five or 10 years. And of course, as we all know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is under construction, and that is designed specifically to export into the Far East market. So that's the kind of you mentioned the word knock on. That's the kind of knock on events that may occur as a result of everything we've been talking about.
0: Brian, Sarah, thank you so much for your time and insight today.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us, Michael.
0: At the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy, Executive Fellow Brian Livingston and Research Fellow Sarah Hastings-Simon. Listen to Sarah's podcast, Energy Versus Climate, at energyversusclimate.com or where you get this podcast. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe, Testing Debt Tolerance with Jean Boivin, the Managing Director of BlackRock Investment Institute. A webinar June 10th. On June 14th, the Big Reset for Newfoundland and Labrador with the Chair of the Premier's Economic Recovery Team, De moya Green, and on the 24th, The Post-Pandemic Recovery Offers Canada Opportunities to Address Structural Inequities in Society. Dr. Roger Martin of the U of T's Rotman School of Management John Schell of Social Capital Partners, and Ellis Don's President and CEO, Jeff Smith, will tackle the issue of employee ownership trusts as a good model for Canadian prosperity. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy,
1: stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.